Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I have a conversation with culture activist, teacher, author, and ceremonialist Stephen Jenkinson. Stephen teaches internationally and is the creator and principal instructor of the Orphan Wisdom School, founded in 2010. With master's degrees from Harvard University in theology and the University of Toronto in social work, he is revolutionizing grief and dying in North America. This was a big interview for me. I spent a week in Stephen's Orphan Wisdom School a few years ago, and it was one of the most provocative and challenging experiences of my life. Over the course of that week, he helped me to better understand the spell that is cast by the English language, and he inspired me to look into the true meaning of the words I would use without much thought. I continue to strive for more clarity, truth, and eloquence in my use of language, which has often been a little annoying for my wife, Debbie. He also inspired me to investigate my own roots, to seek out my ancestors and their stories, and to set a place for them at the table of my life. 
His way of teaching is unlike anything I'd experienced at the many retreats and workshops I've taken. He asks that we come with an openness and willingness to listen to his stories, to let go of the expectation to receive answers for our questions or a comforting balm for our grief and longing. He leaves you no choice but to sit with the questions of who you are, where and who you come from, and how to live a meaningful and purposeful life. It's taken me years to process everything that came up during that stormy week on remote Cortez Island in British Columbia, and so it was a great honor to have Stephen take some time out of his busy schedule and speak about his new book, Come of Age, which deals with the question, where are all the elders? Stephen doesn't spoon-feed us any answers, but he does offer a lot of food for thought. He asks us to slow down and savor the grief and longing in the questions themselves, and to find our own way of living and dying well. Please, set aside some quiet, contemplative time to listen to this conversation. Allow Stephen's words to sink in and stir things up, and allow yourself the time to be with the questions he poses without expecting quick and easy answers. And now, my conversation with Stephen Jenkinson on The Medicine Path. Steer your heart past the truth that you believed in yesterday, such as fundamental goodness and the wisdom of the way. Steer your heart, precious heart, past the women whom you bought year by year, month by month. So thanks for joining me, Stephen. You're welcome. I don't know if you know this, but I attended the first week of your Orphan Wisdom School a few years back on Cortez Island, and it plunged me into a deep inquiry into where I come from, who I come from, and where the language I use comes from. And I couldn't return to the school for various reasons, but in a way I think that was meant to be because I feel that I needed to be in that inquiry for a long time. And I often find myself still returning to those questions. And I think they're questions that will likely remain unanswerable completely because the inability to trace my family origins more than a few generations back uh, carries with it a deep sense of grief and frustration but I feel that it's helped me to understand myself and my more immediate family a lot better, and maybe in some way to better understand this North American culture and the trouble we're currently in. So I want to thank you for that, for posing some difficult questions to us and leaving us to contemplate them on our own. And my hope for this conversation is to inspire some contemplation on the topic of your latest book, Come of Age, which is a call and a plea for elderhood in the dominant culture of North America. And I wonder if we could begin by laying out some groundwork. And I want to let you begin wherever you think it's appropriate, but perhaps you could start by talking about what it is that defines an elder. Well, today, uh, what defines an elder is uh, their absence. That's the first order of business, uh, to be very alert to the fact that, um, you know, if we were, if we were elder literate, course your question wouldn't make any sense at all because uh, the literacy would be uh, rampant and there'd be all kinds of sustainable consequences that would ensue from it 
But as it stands, we have, you know, the, an ever-aging population. We have more old people. Um, and maybe we'll define what that means as we go along here. But for the moment, we have more old people than uh, per square foot than have ever been anywhere on the planet, so far as I'm aware, ever. That's quite extraordinary. So, um, you know, in days gone by, the presence of so many old people would have been a sign of a, a number of um, cultural circumstances. For example, it would mean that their food was plentiful uh, because uh, old people would be very uh, prone to, um, you know, starvation or, or, uh, or a meager diet, of course. And another thing it would be a sign of is um, lack of um, being on the run, some kind of involuntary mobility. Obviously, old people would be... Um, very susceptible to uh, all kinds of dilemmas that would come from being on the run, physical and, and emotional as well. And thirdly, uh, and this many old people per square foot in days gone by would have been an, a sign of a sense of well-being that the culture was possessed of and reassured by. And um, uh, the presence of so many old people, you know, in the midst of the general population would have been, I don't think there's any question about this, um, a cause for, inherently, a cause for celebration, for a sense of pride and, and, a, and a deep achievement in the culture. This is just a couple of the things that the presence of so many old people would have carried in days gone by. Today, we have the same evidence, but we have something like an opposite kind of meaning to be drawn from it. Instead of plentiful food, we have cheap food uh, in North America. And cheap food is a disaster for the marketplace, a disaster for the people who grow it. And of course, an, a boon for big agriculture. And then uh, we, rather than uh, having um, a sense of um, stability, we have this ever, ever um, cresting sense of anxiety that things are not we're not as quite as successful as we should be we're not as far ahead as we should be uh, you know we haven't invested wisely whatever it is and then thirdly um it's i think rather than a sense of well-being the presence of this many older people among us is, has become an indication of something like um the absence of well-being and the prolongation of pulse Instead, because one of the reasons there are so many old people is because uh, we have thwarted uh, kind of a naturally occurring uh, lifespan, and we've prolonged it and prolonged it and prolonged it without any indication really as to why we're doing so simply because biochemically we can. So if you take all of this, you would say that in days gone by, um, if you had this many elders, you would have a remarkably sustainable uh, way of living. They would be a sign of that, and you'd have a remarkable level of deep-seated, time-proven wisdom. And uh, I don't think anyone could argue reasonably that in this age of proliferating technology, information, 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 that there's anything like wisdom that accompanies that information. Just like there's nothing like wisdom that accompanies the proliferation of, of technological innovation. And nothing governs its application, nothing governs its, its use, 
nothing even governs its uh, research and design aspect. Seems like the marketplace does that instead. And as far as living a, a, what would you call a sustainable life? Well, I'll just leave that unspoken to, I think. So all of this really is to say that what once would have been a, a, a prime indicator of the presence of elderhood in the midst of a culture, what we have now is a proliferation of age in the culture. And we've come to realize staggeringly, I maybe I shouldn't say realize, we're granted the opportunity to glimpse the following thing, that we have more people for square, old people for square foot than ever, and we probably have fewer elders, functionally speaking, than ever before. And there seems to be a connection between those two things. I suspect the connection comes down to this. Wherever you overwhelm the limits that are granted to you as a human being or as a human culture, one of the early casualties is the capacity of older people to sustain the kind of chronic wisdom uh, that elderhood requires. I, th I think that's a preamble to, to answering the question that you've asked me. More specifically, what's an indication of elderhood? What, my answer would be that uh, elders are principally not personality types. Whereas, I mean, today, you could say it would appear there's nothing but personality types. That's the cult of, of uh, notoriety that we have. But I suspect um, that there's no personality profile that uh, that faithfully articulates elderhood. Reason being that really elderhood, I think, is a function. It's not a person. It's not a personality type. It's not a particular wrinkle or inclination that various individuals uh, entertain, I suspect it goes something like this, that the function of elderhood is actually dictated by the times, not by the kind of people we're talking about. And if that's true, then the function of elderhood is, is an articulation of really more than anything, the troubles of the times, which is why I called the book the subtitle that it is, you know, the case for elderhood in a time of trouble. Mm -hmm. Elderhood articulates itself most vehemently, I think, when it contends with the culture's deepest running difficulties, and we have more than a few of them now. And uh, if that's possible, I suspect it's more than possible, then, then elders are elders by virtue of the work that they take up and not by virtue of what kind of people that they are. And if they're successful and effective elders, then effectively they work themselves out of a job because undertaking the heavy work you know, dragging the 10-ton stones up the hill, uh, is particularly in a culture like this, um, should have the consequence of making that function obsolete. That's really how it should show itself, and that elders would be in, in effectively retired from that particular endeavor and then perhaps take up um, a craft of some kind where they become a kind of, as the Japanese call it, a national living treasure apropos of a specific culturally um, um, treasured craft of some kind, hmm. not painting up upstairs in your spare time. Hmm. This See, is why you didn't come back to the school, right? <laughs> yeah, you leave me a lot to think about. And mm -hmm. the thing that's coming up for me right now <clears throat> in response to what you're talking about is that I would 
count you among a group of writers and teachers of a certain age um, who are actually gaining in popularity, which I think is an indication that people are looking for guidance from their elders. And that because of the technological advances and the internet, that they're now able to connect with them in ways that didn't always exist through books, podcasts, YouTube, and even the ability for elders to fly around the world and host gatherings like your own. Is, right. this, not, is this not enough to feed the need for elder guidance and transmission of wisdom? Mm. Well, that's a good question. And, you know, rather than make it hypothetical, let me observe simply. First of all, I appreciate the compliment. Thanks. I'll, I'll do my best to try to live up to that description. I'm sure, I think it's a little bit ahead of me, but I'll do what I can. But, um, I, you know, my observation is that it's food that makes hunger. As they say, it's a kind of Mediterranean observation that comes from the kitchen, obviously. The idea being it's the presence of the longed-after thing that, that um, mm. prompts the longing, you could mm -hmm. say. And I'm not sure that a disembodied voice at the end of the – of which I am one, obviously, right now but that the disembodied voice has the full consequence in the lives of the people who seek them out that some kind of in-person encounter would. I'm not sure I'm, I, I'm, you know, I'm acknowledging, for example, that it cuts down enormously on uh, jet fuel and things like this we know, for not traveling all over the place. I certainly grant that. It's one of the reasons I agreed to do the school on the West Coast because there were so many people out there who wanted to come and I couldn't justify me being able to fly versus 60 or 80 or 90 people flying. Mm -hmm. So there's that. <clears throat> I don't know. Uh, you know, I find that a disembodied encounters probably less fulfilling uh, than in-person encounters, certainly from on my end. And I would, I would imagine that this would be similarly experienced among others as well. But I think what you're identifying there could be this, that there really is no longing for the kind of voice that you so generously described without the voice somehow mysteriously whispering at least about the possibilities of just such an encounter. And it's something about the possibility of the rumor or the rumor, excuse me, that that makes the longing for it much more acute than it otherwise would be. That's my guess. Certainly, I can tell you that the things that I do, more and more younger people are coming. And I, when I started out, not about 12 or 14 years ago in, this, in these matters, I would never have entertained that possibility. Largely because I, I, I was persuaded that probably younger people, by which I mean, let's say, under 30, the evidence was, at the time at least, that they were drawn very much to their own, right? Their own uh, generation. Well, it's not even a generation. It's a decade. You guys don't get generations anymore. I don't know if anybody ever told you this. Mm, I've noticed. But like, yeah, it's unbelievable, no? Now you've got to squeeze the whole generational <laughs> understanding into a decade. Into a decade, yeah. It's quite extraordinary when you think about it, because that certainly was not the case when I was in my 20s and 30s, mm. which is uh, 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. But um, 
you know, it honors me tremendously and it challenges me somewhat too, not to do something I haven't done, but more the challenge of the presence of younger people to me comes down to something like this. If, uh, I mean, my kids are long out of the house now, they're in their early thirties, but I do remember having teenagers in the house, which is a remarkable challenge for everyone concerned. And I can remember the times when they become inscrutable, or probably you could just as fairly say when I became inscrutable to them. And my instinct probably at the time was to try to ever more understand them and in that way make them the subject of my inquiry, right, the object of my study, which of course would do amply to drive anyone further away from you, and properly so. And somewhere in there, and I'm, I, I was probably too late for me to be sane with respect to my own kids at the time, but somewhere in there it hit me that if you try to make the person that you're with the object of your inquiry, uh, as likely as not, they won't cooperate, and why should they? And the greater challenge by far for someone who's, who's trying to have a real presence with a younger person is not to see if you can see them, is to see if you can see what they see. If you can turn your chair, you know, by 45 degrees, let's say, and, 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 and look off in the general direction that they seem to be looking. Of course, this is somewhat a metaphor. You, you understand what I'm really saying here is, it is the deep obligation of people my age, and a little bit older, and a little bit younger too, I guess, to see whether or not they can see the world that younger people are seeing, even now, this is not hypothetical, and to see the world that the people of my age and people older than me are in the process of handing over to people half their age, as you and I are speaking right now. And imagine what kind of consequence that would have to glimpse the world that is being handed over to them, basically with a shrug. Maybe it's an aggrieved shrug by older people, but for all of that, there doesn't seem to be an enormous amount of a sense of responsibility or even culpability amongst people my age with respect to the world that you at your age are in the process of inheriting. And there's something fundamentally discrediting in that arrangement. So perhaps uh, you could say that my experience with uh, younger folks has been that they are on a kind of involuntary quest it's not really their idea that if they had a fundamental choice about the matter, they may not undertake it. And it's going to sound strange to you. It's like the, it's like the younger person's vision of Don Quixote, that younger people, not all by any stretch, but quite a few are looking for an older person in the midst of all of this tremendous mistrust of older people. They're out there trying to find an older person they can be wrong about they can be wrong about. It's so counterintuitive. It's, it's almost befuddling just to consider the possibility. And a good number of these people seem to come to things that I do. Well, I'm not going to tell you whether or not I'm the one that they are wrong about. I have no idea. But I'm certainly in a kind of, well, in a sort of grief-encrusted fashion, encouraged partly by their presence, partly by their consternation and and partly by their heartbreak, which is what they bring in spades to what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. The image that you're evoking for me is 
the image of an older person walking ahead of a younger person. And perhaps mm -hmm. instead of turning around to face them and telling them the way things are or the way things should be, rather mm -hmm. maybe moving just slightly behind them, just with a hand on the shoulder, perhaps, you know, um, and looking in the distance together and maybe trying to understand what needs to be done together. Well, I, I'm not sure. I hesitate about the together part. Hmm. And uh, the, the reason is this. You know, younger people and older people, for the most part, I would say, should not understand themselves to be on anything like the same path or with the same jobs before them, with the same kind of spirit work before them, with the same kind of undertakings or purposefulness. The sheer difference in where they are in the arc of their lives really requires a different understanding of what the uptake is on the whole matter. But, you know, I take the image that you describe and I think of it etymology, which I may have said the very last hour of the class that you came to, as I recall. And it's a beautiful etymology. Uh, the word is catastrophe. And it's come from a Greek, the first four letters are a Greek word, which means a kind of descent. That's what kata means. It means, it doesn't mean exactly a plummet. It means a real purposeful descent, but a very marked and probably involuntary descent, but uh, not, um, not hellbound. The word actually suggests something like this. You have to go down far enough to gain entrance to something because it's very, the entrance to this mystery of being a human being is very subliminal. That means underneath the threshold. That's how you find it by going down and then eventually in. And then the root word of catastrophe is, um, it's an old, old Indo-European word which comes from weaving. Uh, or any kind of assembling, you could call it. And, and the thrust of the word is, it means anything braided or woven or, yeah, I mean, that's probably a good way of saying it. You put it back together and it means something like this. It means the way that has been crafted for you by those who came before you, by which you will descend deeply and probably involuntarily into the mysteries of life to grow a deep and reluctant acquaintance with them so as to enable you to um, take up the work that the people who preceded you on this road can no longer take up, given their age or given the fact that they've died, and they become an ancestral presence to you more than a, than a kind of in-the-flesh companion, a kind of... A kind of um, I don't know, a, a presence in spirit, maybe. And, you know, elders have to practice that prior to their death, practice that ability. And if they do so uh, really palpably, then people in the early middle age can see elders taking up this function and are in some respects, let's say, inspired by that. In so doing, uh, they come to their own uh, older time with this living example, you see, in their mind. And as the young people watch the early middle-aged people caught up by this sense of responsibility, the younger people are raised with the understanding that this is not a rumor. 
that it's not a tease and it's not a torment, that there are actually people willing to undertake something that they will not live long enough to really taste the benefit of. Mm. And the, the, the best image, it's an obvious one, is if you really want the, the people of your grandchildren's generation to know what you know, wonderful wine is like, you better start planting the vineyard now. But you're very unlikely to drink from it. Mm. And that's, to, to me, what an elderhood function fundamentally is. It's not being selfless. I don't mean that. And there's no martyrdom implied in it. I mean something maybe subtler than martyrdom. It's the understanding that um, your greatest fears of what will become of your grandchildren's generation will come to pass if you don't conduct yourself now as if their time is coming. And if you do, you can have some consequence for them even though you'll have no presence in their lives by then. Mm -hmm. hmm. This uh, reminds me of a story that I thought of sharing with you. <clears throat> my, my wife and I, we moved to the West, uh, from the West Coast to Montreal last year. So I've, mm -hmm. been, which I've, been, so I've been learning French, which um, maybe ironically has taught me a lot more about English. Sure. <laughs> yesterday, I was uh, walking my dogs and listening to the audio version of Come of Age. And right at a certain moment in the recording, an old man came riding down the middle of the street in some kind of tricked out scooter. And right. the sc scooter had a vanity plate on the front that said, Retraité, which is the French word for retired. But of uh -huh. course, and I, I didn't know that, but as soon as I saw the word, I understood it all. And of course, it's a source of the English word retreat. And right. that scene seemed to be just such a perfect illustration for what you're driving at in the book. And it made me laugh, but also feel really quite sad. Both. Yeah. Both. Yeah, understandably so. Yeah. Well, I tell you, when the book, uh, there's a little bit of the first chapter of the book I inadvertently leaked it a little bit. And let's say, I don't know, maybe a hundred or something people read it before I realized I'd done so. And um, the reactivity was really quite, quite instructive. That the lion's share of the people who read it turned out to be older people. And just about uniformly, they were resentful in some fashion. Resentful, angry, felt underserved, um, felt deeply misrepresented by the things I'd written in the book, uh, which is all understandable. Uh, and one of the things they pointed to was, um, you know, my claim that, um, that I think there's a statement right in the beginning of the introduction that, uh, that uh, it's no longer a matter of inviting elders, those of them left, you know, into the marketplace. They're not out there waiting for the invitation. And the next line is, they're not out there. Mm. And people really took umbrage at that. And one of the claims that they made is the reason that they're not out there is because nobody's seeking them out. And the reason that no one's seeking them out is because the dominant culture of North America is absolutely youth drunk. They didn't quite say it that way, but that's certainly what they meant. And while I understand completely how unnerving it is to be ever older in a generation that has, or in, at least in a culture that has no regard for aging, and the extraordinary hurt that must that ensues, I, you know, this is not lost on me. 
And for all of that, I maintain the allegation that elderhood is ever more required because of that situation. And, and the best way I can illustrate it for you is to say, in the midst of a youth drunk culture, would an elder cite youth drunkenness as the reason that they're not functioning as an elder? And my answer to you is, I don't think that's what they, that's the cop, the plea that they would cop. I don't think so. I think, you know, the elder function is ever more challenged to find its way in a time that doesn't seek it out, you see. So that's the great confoundment of the thing, mm-hmm. is that elders, if they wait to be recognized as such, well, get comfortable, because the chances are you'll wait indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Because the whole operation is in, is in abeyance now. It's in the shadows. There's not many people who have had an experience of genuine elderhood in their early years. So, so where is this, where is this demand? Where is this recognition supposed to come from? Mm-hmm. Because once all of us have forgotten what a passenger pigeon looks like, it's as if there was no such thing. Mm-hmm. See what I mean? Mm-hmm. Passenger pigeon being now extinct. And I am suggesting to you that there is something about the function of elderhood, which is a kind of sentinel species now. And it should be on some kind of endangered list. Hmm. 20 years ago, Robert Bly in his book, The Sibling Society, poses the question, where have all the grown-ups gone? Yes. In your latest book, you ask, where are all the elders? And I can't help but see a connection here. In the call for elderhood, it seems to me that the first step must be to help adolescents become adults at an appropriate age. And I'm now 43 years old. And for the past few years, I've been thinking a lot about what it means to truly be an adult. And that inquiry has led me to reckon with all the parts of myself that weren't fully grown up. And I'm wondering if you think that the lack of effective initiation rituals in our culture leads to a kind of perpetual adolescence that even seems to be then celebrated by the popular culture by this uh, fascination with youthfulness and staying youthful. Well, of course, your question makes the case, doesn't it? I mean, you're certainly persuaded that there's some connection and um, it's not lost on me. And probably many of the people listening would have at least a cursory Uh, willingness to consider what you've just described. But here's the dilemma. Not unlike you, I was um, talking with somebody, I was doing an interview, I think it was yesterday, with somebody in England. And this person is involved in the very work that you're asking me about. And they were asking me whether or not I would participate in the film that they were making that basically, oh, that credits the entire operation, the entire idea of taking up this initiatory work. And when I hesitated, the person got very frustrated with me very quickly. Hmm. But I want to tell you that my hesitation is, is principled, you know. It's not a hesitation that, um, you know, for example, is me wondering what part I might play in this. Not at all. My hesitation is something like this. Certainly the lack of initiation at puberty has immense consequences for even our understanding of what constitutes grown-upness or maturity, or any of those things. 
That's true. But I'm wondering a more troubled thought. It's two parts. One is, you know, there's not just initiation of puberty. There's a sequence of these things throughout a lived life in a sane culture. Mm-hmm. It's not just transmuting, you know, the uh, octane of adolescence into something that serves the world. I mean, that's struggle enough, certainly. But what about the acknowledgement of um, the transition from a life of singlehood into some into, into a deeply entertained matrimony? What about the transition from never having been a parent to being one, something that you're familiar with? What about the transition from being employed to not being employed? I don't mean being laid off. I mean coming to the fullness of your employment years. What about the initiatory event that should accompany um, the obvious transition from being on the take as a beneficiary of the culture to one who benefits the culture instead, by which I mean elderhood? Well, there's no, there's no initiatory practices for any of these things, by and large. They're very perfunctory if they happen at all, or as I called it in Die Wise, they're kind of um, sham rites of passage, mm-hmm. which no one can really be proud of. Right. So there's the first half of the dilemma. Here's the second one. While I understand and feel the sense of urgency that drives so many, let's call it middle-aged or late middle-aged men in particular right now, to take up the work of um, doing something about the younger men who are going amok or awry. And I shouldn't say only men, because I'm, I'm sure this was undertaken perhaps even uh, earlier uh, by women, but I don't know that from my own experience. But the question I'm raising about it is this. Given all of that urgency, are we to assume then that a sense of urgency and having missed it when it was your turn qualifies people of that age group to undertake this initiatory work on behalf of someone half their age? Mm -hmm. Because you know what I'm going to say. Mm -hmm. I don't think it does. And that's my hesitation. That this is, I mean, you are playing, that's not a fair way of saying it. You are proposing to undertake a rather extraordinary piece of work with someone who, uh, provided that they are somewhat um, amenable to it, uh, could have immense consequence but not necessarily redeeming consequence or positive consequence, whatever that word might mean. It could just as easily have dire consequence. And then who's accountable for that? Mm-hmm. And how does that get recompensed? And, and who's minding the minders? Uh, I'm not speaking hierarchically so much as I'm simply wondering from whence comes our sense of capacity in this in these matters when we ourselves were not on the receiving end of the very kind of initiatory event that you're describing uh, when we came to our you know pubescent time of life i mean these either these things are very very profound and have immense consequence for our very circuitry or they're a kind of banner a kind of badge that you that you plaster on something that remains fundamentally unchanged, only acknowledged. And because this is the language I hear uh, that people employ in taking up this work to acknowledge and to listen. And that this kind of vaguely, not even vaguely, I guess it's, it's language from generic counseling practice. 
and as if the fundamental dilemma that faces young people is not being listened to. I mean, when, if you consider the, quote, social media, not that I think that any meaningful conversation necessarily goes on there, but it proliferates in a way that was unimaginable even when I was your age 20 years ago. And for all of that um, conversation, do you mean to tell me that people are feeling less listened to than ever? And that this is the principal reason that we, up, that we undertake this work on behalf of younger people so we can listen to them? You know, obviously I'm proposing by this rhetorical way of saying it to you that I think younger people by far are not starved for an opportunity to hear themselves talk one more time about what bothers them. But they're starved for the opportunity to hear someone speak poetically and mythically and profoundly and heartbreakingly and compellingly and authentically without bullshitting, without without high-fiving without, um, you know, without um, a kind of artifice of, uh, of that if we just listen to each other, we're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. You know, we got more friggin', you can hear I'm getting a little wrapped up in the question now. <laughs> we've got more counseling, for God's sake, of all stripes and than we've, seems to me, than have ever existed before. We got counselors out there whose, whose credential on this matter is nothing more than wanting to hear someone. I mean, it's a credential-free zone now, being life coach and all the rest. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are being listened to, I suspect, more than ever before. Mm-hmm. How is it working out, mm-hmm. I'm wondering? What's the consequence of all of this willingness to guide someone through the ups and downs of life? How do the guides understand themselves as being capable mm-hmm. in this regard? Is it simply because someone seeks you out? And if they do, do they seek you out by virtue of never experiencing that, you know, the kind of deep running kind of non-guidance that the example of an elder fundamentally is? And if that's where it comes from, then this, does this non-experience really confer upon the seeker the power to designate someone as worthy to accompany them on this search? You see what I'm saying? Oh yeah. Yeah, I do. And I, I agree. Um, I think, well, I'm thinking now about uh, about how we're almost required now to be responsible for our own growing up. And, you know, that's what I feel was a big part of what Robert Bly and John Lee and Michael Mead and, and those guys were starting to do with the men's movement in the 90s. Um, and I'm wondering... Oh, sorry, was to, was to what? Was to help men grow themselves up in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think, you know, he saw the lack of maturity in middle-aged men. And uh, I think he was trying to hold space for that. No, um, but I don't know. Do you think that that men's movement was unsuccessful? Mm-hmm. You know, you could say, and, and with real, um, real compassion, it might be a little early to tell mm-hmm. yet. I'd be willing to say that. I'd be, I'd be, I pass along to you a, an observation made by Leonard Cohen, bless his soul, one of our great national living treasures and the denizen of the city that you live in now, mm. where he, uh, as you may know, he, he took himself to a Zen monastery in California when he came off touring for the, the record called The Future 
and he was in desperate, desperate shape by his own estimation. And he eventually took the orders, took the vows, and became, uh, well, he's ordained. And so I don't know what the name of the designation is. But he was ordained, and somebody said to him, well, how would you characterize the training? And he said, well, it's very severe, he said, and it is designed fundamentally to hurt you in some way that can be very helpful. But he said, at the end of the day, the whole thing is to get you to stop whining. <laughs> I was completely captivated by that characterization, you know. I just listened to it over and over again in my mind to get you to stop whining. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't sound very compassionate. Well, the compassion in a place like that is very well, I was going to say disguised. Maybe it's not disguised. Let's call it not supportive. Mm -hmm. It's deeply compassionate non-support. And uh, one more sentence about that, and then I'll come back to your question about the men's movement. Mm -hmm. But what, what I mean by that non-support is this. I learned this desperately when I worked in the death trade for so many years. That people, some of whom were working, and that certainly their families, and oftentimes the dying people themselves, were uh, desperate to try to find a way to be supportive to each other while remaining somehow authentic. And it fell to me over and over again to, to say, this is not possible in a death phobic culture. You cannot be supportive and be authentic where dying is concerned at the same time. Why not? Because it's a death phobic culture. That's why not. And generally speaking, people understand support as something that underwrites and endorses their fundamental take on things. That's how people experience support. That's how they identify supportive measures, supportive statements, supportive people, and distinguish them from non-supportive people. Because in some fundamental way, the supportive ones corroborate um, the supported person's take on things. Mm -hmm. But if the, if the person in question is a dying person who hates to be dying, who refuses to die, how do you propose to support them then? In a way that they will recognize as being supportive. And I think you know what the answer is. It can't be done without one of those two things changing. Mm. So mostly, when I was on the street in this manner, I saw people collude all the time, all the time, in the name of seeming to be supportive, of appearing to be supportive, and being experienced on the other side as being supportive. So, you know, I was in on a few uh, of the early uh, conferences and so on of the men's movement, as you've described it. And um, you may have noticed there's a story that comes from that encounter, that early encounter in that new book I wrote about uh, what happened to James Hillman in one of these events. Oh, I haven't reached and, it yet. Uh, oh, yeah, it's called um, uh, Spilled Wine, Broken Cup. Hmm. And I think you might find it bracing because it certainly doesn't say that all that myth mythic, poetic orientation to life produced um, uh, elder-respecting men. That's not what happened. What happened was that um, basically it was a conference for catharsis junkies. Mm. And I know that doesn't sound that um, compassionate, and I suppose at some level it isn't, but I am faithfully reporting to you what I saw. Mm -hmm. that principally it was about getting your yayas out. Mm -hmm. And there certainly was no hesitation to bring in all manner of um, 
borrowings, let's call it very loosely, from many of the world's religions and, and cultural traditions, those of them left. No hesitation about doing it whatsoever. I didn't hear any discussion that fessed up to the fundamental cultural poverty that produces a willingness to cherry pick among the cultural traditions, quote, on, uh, uh, on offer, you know, on the cultural menus, on the YouTube menus. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of people who volunteer up their culture uh, for general consumption by uh, aimless white folks. There's no doubt about that either. So there's no blame in what I'm saying. It's a kind of lament. You know, this is, this is what I saw. It's not all that I saw. I'm not saying people weren't helped or, or in some way fortified. Uh, but um, I guess you can tell the beginnings of my answer to what do I think about how the men's movement went. I could never argue whether or not it was an important thing to have happen because it seems to me it was a hugely important thing. And it was finally eclipsed uh, largely because I think um, a, a good number of men were embarrassed by it, frankly. And uh, I think the greater calumny by far came from them, particularly men in positions of power you know, and responsibility and uh, fingers on the trigger and all of that, uh, which is, explains why it doesn't have the same sort of marketplace presence and draw that it may have had 20 or thereabouts years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just, I, I, I guess I wish that the, the fundamentals of the cultural poverty that must have prompted it into existence in the first place weren't so readily left behind in the name of, you know, celebration and, uh, and as I said, this cultural cherry picking and so forth. Mm-hmm. I don't find that, frankly, a spiritual work. It's not a word I use much, the word spiritual, but maybe for the sake of being understood, you know, in a quick fashion, I don't find that kind of cultural, I don't like the word appropriation because I, I think they were doing their best you know, at the time, but I think I'm not sure that they were as, as served as they could have been by the presence of older people counseling something like hesitation and going slowly and something like learning instead of inspiration and something like staying a long time in the poverty of the time and not so much, you know, voting for catharsis at a, at all costs, basically. Mm. You know, it's funny, uh, right before our conversation, I was um, sitting having a picnic with my wife and a visiting friend, and mm. I was relating to him uh, some of my experience uh, exploring men's groups. And I, I talked about the exact same thing, um, but catharsis junkie, I think, is is appropriate there. And even so far as the mode of catharsis that, uh, felt right to one man became a kind of identity and the men's groups became like a kind of uh, dumping ground where they would just show up and play that role of, as the weeping one or the angry raging one and it seemed to be in these um, real extremes there didn't seem to be much subtlety of emotion there and I did see a lot of the appropriation you're talking about um and not much inquiry into how we got there in the first place beyond what our uh, fathers and mothers might have done to us. Right. Um, and so this is one of the big questions for me, and it's, it's the last one I'll ask of you. But um, okay. because many of us in North America 
have been cut off from our ancestral traditions, which mm. I think is really one of the root causes of many of the issues that we're currently contending with. Um, things mm -hmm. like absence of ritual, lack of purpose and meaning, uh, meaning, no sense of community, things like that. All the things that the mm -hmm. life coaches are trying to address. Um, right. And when we no longer have a connection to the rites and rituals of our own culture, and I'm thinking specifically about um, pre-Christian traditions that honored nature and the ancestors and spirit. Um, what else can we do but learn from other cultures that have kept these kind of traditions alive and somehow adapt them to our own modern lives? And mm -hmm. th this is, of course, the question of misappropriation, um, but I'm not sure what other options we have other than to leave things are or create something entirely new, which I don't even know is possible. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is a very good uh, sequence. Um, and let me start at the beginning of what you said, your characterization that we've <clears throat> lost touch with, lost connection with. There was a second characterization you made, and both of them, you employed the kind of passive voice, the passive understanding of these things. So the fact that you expressed the dilemma passively is part of the dilemma, if you don't mind me pointing that out. Oh, could you be what, more specific? I'm not sure. I know well, that's pretty mean. specific. That's pretty specific. You, you specifically said we've lost touch with. We are no longer, um, uh, no longer is available to us. Uh, characterizations of that kind. Mm -hmm. The problem with that characterization is there is no, there's no, insin there's no sense that the people who are not enjoying this connection are in any way responsible for the lack of it. Okay. It's not like it's a simple matter of somebody along the way ripped us off and we've been lived a life of ancestral ripoff for the last choose your generations. And that's the problem. I'm not saying that that's not in the mix, but I'm saying, you know, the spell either is perpetrated by the question, by your way of wondering about it, or the spell is in some way or other surfaced by your way of wondering about it. So let me see if I can do the second one. Hmm. I certainly take your point, right? That in the absence of, as you said, in the absence of an ongoing, legitimate, um, continuous transmission spiritual tradition, cultural spiritual tradition, what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. Okay. So let me see if I can answer that and not make it hypothetical or make it um, rhetorical. Maybe, maybe there is a continuous transmission available to us, but it's not the one we're looking for. It's not the one we treasure. It's not the one we'd want to identified with. It's not the one we'd want to find ourselves in because part of our continuing ancestral inheritance is the rupture in our continuous ancestral inheritance. It doesn't mean that nothing's happening, that nothing's coming through the pipe. It means that it's goneness that's coming through the pipe. And that's a different order of encounter than nothingness. Okay. So for example, a, what does one, how does one undertake this this goneness and one answer would be well this is very available to you learn the language of the people that you're accusing of not sustaining you 
by not giving you a viable ancestral tradition to live by. Learn the language. And if it happened to have been English, well, learn the language of what you deem to be the last generation of ancestors who seem to have had it figured out in some fashion, who may have been conducting themselves as if you, in your generation now, might have come to pass. You might have to go back quite a ways. You might have to go back on the other side of the Industrial Revolution if we're talking about English speaking, just for starters. But in any event, you learn the language, and in so doing, as you said, you're trying to learn French now. In so doing, you learn a lot more than nouns and verbs and participles and conjunctions. You learn an entire um, cosmology. You learn an entire universe of consequence, a real understanding of cause and effect that departs rather drastically from your own. You know, you learn a kind of constellations of significance that you can't even imagine on your own and yet live vibrantly in another language. So I've done this with English language. Uh, I, every time I write something, I'm contending always with the language itself, not fighting with. I'm trying to get the language to, let's say, to articulate in an inarticulate time. That's why I, I pour over etymology so frequently. Hmm. So, you know, what does one do vis-a-vis the, the legitimate ongoing presence of other traditions? Well, certainly hold them in some high esteem by some miracle by which they've been able to, let's say, carry on in a fashion that you don't think your own has been able to do. And learn in some fashion how you think that happened how you think they may have found a way to do that against some rather incredible odds if you're talking about this continent. Incredible odds. And, you know, the odds are would include the likes of me and perhaps yourself, that the advent of us on these shores turned into the fundamental challenge to indigenous cultures on this continent finding their way and, and somehow still there and remarkably, quote-unquote, available to the likes of you and I. That's a different study than taking them up, taking up cultural practices. I'm not saying not be educated by the presence of, you know, viable alternatives of a spiritual and cultural and mythic nature. I'm certainly not saying anything of the kind. I was lucky enough, and it was a strange encounter, to be invited to teach it in Israel recently. I was there for about a week and a half. And, you know, they invite, they asked me to come and talk about all these grief things. I'm thinking to myself on the way over, man, if there were ever a culture <laughs> that you would think just kind of had that stuff nailed down, mm. you know, and this is what I was, I was very leery about it. And here's what people came up to me and said, never, you know, in the, in the hearing of their, of countrymen, but in ones and twos, they would come to me at the breaks or walking from one building to another. And they'd say, for God's sake, keep going with this stuff. You won't get any encouragement from any of us, but you have to keep going. You have no idea how lousy we are at grieving. The, you know, the, the party line is that that's all we do and that we've got the market cornered on it. But I'm telling you, well, anyway, it was extraordinary encounter, you know. So you never know. Uh, what comes to you, what's available to you uh, in the guise of another living culture. What you want to take from them is their 
their capacity to live. I don't mean take as in steal. I mean, you take from their example that it's not a rumor, right? And that they're not in some fashion similarly cherry picking other people's cultures. And hopefully somewhere early on there, your instinct to do that is, you could say you've had it educated out of you by genuinely admiring a living tradition. Maybe an example like this would suffice. When I was um, in my early 20s, I was very compelled by a stone carving in particular. No chance to make any kind of living whatsoever, but that didn't enter in. And yet I, I jumped in with both feet, indefensibly so, and did everything I could to learn about it. Uh, only to discover in short order that no one basically was carving stone that I could find. No living person. I was able to find one old guy, but by and large, it was impossible. So, you know, being self-educated in these matters is having a lunatic for a teacher, right? Obviously. <laughs> so, so what did I do? Uh, partly in desperation and partly because I couldn't find an alternative. I simply overtly copied the work that I admired. It, had to be, it happened to be Henry Moore and one or two others mm. at the time. And as I did so, it, only, it lasted a very short period of time. But as I did so, I could feel uh, something in my hands. Um, how should I put it? They knew that this was a very important baby step. That's what it was. It was training wheels. It was not admirable, but it was understandable. What I didn't do was try to sell it, try to label myself as a realized sculptor because I was able to co copy Henry Moore. And in short order, I found the limits of the copying. I hope I did it in some honorable way. I probably wasn't as honorable as I could have been. I may not have fessed up that that's what I was doing in case anybody was looking <laughs> over my shoulder or quote unquote admiring something that I was doing. But I do know that in short order, I... I, re I could just feel that this simply was not my language and that I had an obligation to mumble in whatever negligible language I had rather than sing arias in someone else's language. And that's what I'm saying about cultural appropriation. I'm not saying it's not understandable. I would just like it to be recognized as an artifact of poverty and not as a lunge towards sanity. And if we could take some responsibility for our poverty in this regard... We may not hold other people's traditions up to some kind of bizarrely uncritical standard of that's what we're trying to get to and turn every indigenous person into another friggin' elder or shaman or medicine man. I'm, I'll never forget hearing a quote from a, a guy in the, I guess in the Amazon somewhere. And he was being interviewed about the ayahuasca um, tours that are frankly apparently going on down there now. And he said, man, he said, I can hardly wait to your dot-com millionaires finally have enough ayahuasca and get all their realizations they're looking for because they're exhausting us down here. Because, mm. of course, their money is limitless. And they bring whole tours. Like, they bring companies. Can you imagine? Mm -hmm. They bring company meetings down for ayahuasca sessions with these guys. I know, for brainstor so, brainstorming sessions. Brainstorming, I guess. <laughs> That'd be one word for it. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's just extraordinary things that are, that are underway now. And I'm not sure I can tell a cultural appropriation advocate from a Mac Macmillan Blodell employee. 
Because by and large, the orientation seems to be, if it's in the world, it's fair game. If it's in the world, you can learn from it. If it's in the world, it's available to you too. And I don't think there's any, I mean, if you really are fond of things indigenous, the first realization is, it is the marker of indigenosity itself to be local and specific, not to be generalizable, not to be universal, not to be universally available either. Anyway, that's an awful lot to say about what you've asked, but that's the beginning. Hmm. Yeah, and I just want to mention that I didn't mean to imply any blame in um, how I described what I was speaking about in terms of being cut off from the traditions of my great grandparents. Um, Mm -hmm. I very much respect who they were and I only got to know anything of them because my great grandfather um, had the inclination to write a memoir near the end of his days and Mm. have his wife translate it from German into English to be left, to be left for his own children and grandchildren. And when I read um, that, that uh, postscript that it was to be read by his great grandchildren, who is me. Mm. Uh, I got chills sure. through my body because I felt he was actually thinking of me in the future, like you mentioned, and um, trying to. Do Except something. it wasn't the future. It's not the future. You see, he is your. It, it, after that, it's very difficult to say who he is to you, temporally speaking. I agree. He is, you could say, the past that accompanies you now. Exactly. That enables you where your children are concerned. What tense would you call that? Yeah. I mean, it it kind of bleeds across all the tenses, doesn't it? No, it does, for sure. And I mean, I recognize that a large part of um, probably my own innate longing for a spiritual life is rooted in the life of my ancestors and was broken, you know, that, that kind of ongoing tradition was just broken a generation ago with my own parents who discarded Mm -hmm. any ideas of religion or spirituality. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's being able to read that and read of their very devotional life. And they were farmers who um, were forced to leave Russia during the revolution. And they settled in Saskatchewan um, along with a lot of other Mennonites and reading something of their struggle and their, um, their deep connection to community and in God and all of these things that sustain them through incredibly hard times has been uh, really humbling to me, but um, also explains a lot about things that I questioned in myself, uh, you know, like where does my longing for a spiritual life come from? I didn't see it mm-hmm. in my immediate family. And so mm-hmm. it does feel like uh, even though I never got to meet my grandparents, um, it does feel like they are with me in some way. And I guess the thing I've, I've struggled with is, does that mean that perhaps it's something I should consider is going to a Mennonite church or something? And it's just for me, I'm not so monotheistic and mm-hmm. I'm more, uh, have a more natural inclination. And so I'm more right. drawn to indigenous practices and, but it's always something I'm very cautious of. And mm-hmm. So I, I guess what, um, what I feel I've come to at this stage is that uh, I can have a very simple uh, relationship to the world around me and these quiet little rituals. And that somehow is both indigenous and connected to my own ancestry. No doubt. I mean, hopefully that's true. Uh, And you could consider this along with it. 
that, um, you know, the many God religions typically over, over at least recorded history have rarely had a problem with the single God religions, creedally speaking. Mm-hmm. The but the, the reciprocal is not true, mm-hmm. that the one God religions chronically have a problem with the many God religions. Yeah. Okay, with, with, this is my way of saying to you, it's absolutely conceivable to me, not that I'm giving you any advice at all, that you could sit in a Mennonite church with a spirit-infused understanding, uh, you being sitting there as an animist with, yeah. no, with no irreconcilable antagonism between the two, not coming yeah. from you at least. No, no, that's, and that's something I've definitely come around to you is um, kind mm-hmm. of embracing what I feel is like a, almost a Christian DNA that I've inherited um, mm-hmm. and found my own connection to Christ and what the idea of the spirit is and all that. So, yeah, I'm quite comfortable in any um, spiritual place now, thankfully. Um, but I, I, I owe that a lot to the, that initial inquiry that you left us with. And um, that was the thing that led me to um, seek out any evidence of my ancestry. And you know, right. I, I found a couple letters and that's, that's about it. But mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, it was almost like um, a food for me. And uh, it's definitely given me a lot to chew on over the years. Well, hopefully you'll find it nutritional too. Yeah, it has been. Um, so I think we should wrap it up. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about what you're, what you're doing next. And I understand mm-hmm. that you're, you're going back on the road with the Grief and Mystery Tour with Gregory Hoskins. And two other band members. So there'll be four of us on the stage. Okay. Where's the tour going to take you? Yeah, All over North America, actually, starting in the middle of September or so, ending towards the end of November. So it's a, it's a big deal. And uh, it's nervous making, I must tell you. Uh, but um, yeah, I'm floating the tour basically, and and uh, in the belief that um, what we experience in uh, in uh, Australia, New Zealand, Tasmania, and then and then subsequent in the UK wasn't a flash in the pan. That it was very much in keeping with our conversation today, you you and mine. So we're touring all over. Uh, we've called it Nights of Grief and Mystery, so as not to misrepresent it as as a distractive kind of entertainment. It's a deep kind of entertainment. It's, I suppose they're not that common uh, anymore, but uh, I understand this as a kind of art form that's very old, actually, that carries uh, many of the themes you and I have talked about today and does so without any apology, musically and um, lyrically. And uh, I suppose I'm the... (laughs) I, I don't know what you'd call my part. You're the front um, man. I'm the front man, I suppose. I'm, <laughs> I'm the one who wonders aloud more often than not. And then I'm accompanied by extraordinarily professional musicians who've lent their musical gifts and capacities to this uh, wondering of mine. And we've turned into a bit of a motorcycle gang, I suppose. <laughs> and uh, we're lucky to have each other. And then we have these local organizers for the tour. That's really how it's happening. We're not organizing it from central command, so to speak, but many people have been in the school over the years who have seen me do things, have stepped forward and been willing to organize one stop on this tour in their hometown or city. That's just an extraordinary, that's borders on a kind of revolutionary way of, um, of loving the place that they live in, is to bring the likes of us there, imagining that the, 
by us appearing and, and you know, um, having this kind of deep genuflection towards the mystery of being a human being and making it available over the course of a couple hours in a sort of a concert form uh, is, um, is something to be proud of. And, uh, and we're very proud that they're, they're willing to have us. So, uh, so we're coming. Great. So I think um, we're going to play out this interview with uh, something that you recorded on that last tour. <clears throat> oh, beautiful. What are you going to do? I'm not sure. James will send something through. Okay. Very good. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I hope to catch that on the road. I, I'm assuming that you're going to play Ottawa, if not uh, Quebec. I think Ottawa is right towards the end of the tour in November. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, I feel like after a few years that I might be ready, might be approaching readiness for that second week of the Orphan Wisdom School. So oh, yeah. I hope to see you uh, down the road sometime soon. And uh, I really appreciate you taking so much time with me today. I'm happy to do it, Brian. Thanks for the invitation. Okay. Take care now. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. From what I can tell, these are strange days. My corner of the world is full of rights and people exercising them and claiming them and scrambling after them, defending them, establishing them, and writing them down. I suppose it's a good thing in some way. There's the basic human rights need to be defended, but there's this other kind, at least where I come from, a strange category of rights. I have the right not to suffer. I heard that one a lot in the death trade. And one even more current than that, this right to disbelieve, the right to exempt yourself from the deep consideration of what pertains. That was my conversation with Stephen Jenkinson, and I hope you found it as nourishing and thought-provoking as I did. You can find out more about Stephen and his upcoming events at orphanwisdom.com. If you value these kind of conversations and would like to show your support, there are a few ways that you can help. The simplest is to subscribe and leave a positive review on iTunes, which will help people find the podcast. You could also share it with people in your social network. Another way is to become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com forward slash Brian James Teaching. Membership starts at just $5 a month, and supporters gain access to dozens of yoga practice resources that I've been developing over the past few years. There are hours of vinyasa yoga sequences, breathwork, chanting, and guided meditations to help you develop a life-supporting and life-enriching home practice. You could also leave a one-time donation at medicinepathpodcast.com. Well, that's all for now. Until next time, when we meet on the Medicine Path. I'm in Mexico. I'm teaching in Mexico. And it's hot. Something like this. And I was at a rich man's house. In fact, I was at a rich man's ashram or whatever it was, a retreat center of some patchouli description. And it was funky in its way. But it was kind of money zen, as I've come to call it. You've probably seen the combination yourself. Money zen. So it was that. And it was Mexican to boot. So you combine that as you will. It sounds like the newest restaurant in town, actually, now that I think about it. And there I was, and I was sitting on this little patio. And there's the man in question, who might have been a drug lord, for all I could tell. 
and his three sisters who'd only flown in from Mexico City 15 minutes before I got there. And the woman who insisted that we meet, her idea entirely, although she abandoned me to him almost instantly, and myself. And we sat there and he kept, he would look over at me occasionally as sort of hooded-eyed chameleon types can do. And then he'd look away and talk Spanish. And then eventually he swung over in his kind of gecko fashion and he kind of looked at me sideways. He said, so, what do you do? <laughs> That's the great crucifixion of, of idle chatter. So, what do you do? And if you fall for it, you'll answer. And then you'll feel obliged to fit in your rather massive biography into about 17 seconds of banter if you fall for it. Well, I didn't that particular day. I was on my game. I did not fall for it, although I did feel that I was under the gaze of this kind of a narco-funded situation. And for all of that, I said something in the order of, well, I just um, don't have a job, really. I drift about, and occasionally I'm troubled aloud, and some people seem to be compelled by that. And then the woman who, who brought us, she, she kind of gave me the prompt, like, say more than that, you know, you're, you're up to it, you're making me look bad. And so I, say, I just went back to her, over to you, uh, since you seem to think this is a match made in heaven. So away you go, and she, she began to read the bio, more or less, which was a little embarrassing. And then she got to a place wherein she mentioned the dead. This was an interesting moment, because his eyes really narrowed then. I thought they were closed, but they narrowed even more. And he leaned in, and he was about this far away from me, and he said, The dead, eh? Oh, he wasn't Canadian. The dead, huh? And I said, yeah, the dead. He said, well, he said, if you believe in that kind of thing. <laughs> Now, I must admit that temptation came to get me then. I'd, re I'd resisted it until that moment. But I figured, you know, God works in mysterious ways. And this opportunity was one of them. So I leaned in ever closer still so that I could smell the aftershave. And I said to him, well, my friend, I said, they believe in you. <laughs> And of course, all we can hope on an evening like this is that dead are not assembled, your dead and mine are not assembled in a dark room in a tropical climate somewhere, overseeing these proceedings and, of course, exercising their right to disbelieve in us. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.